Today's podcast was with Maxine Minter, who is Australia's first female solo GP. Maxine is an incredibly driven, passionate and sharp person. We dive deep into her early background, some of her work she spent doing in the United States, which included a lot of exec coaching, and what she's doing now as she's setting up CoVentures, which is a $10 million pre-seed fund. Now, if you're an LP and you happen to want to invest in Maxi's fund, please reach out to her or you can reach out to us and we can give you an intro. We think she is wickedly intelligent and this would be a great opportunity to invest in a first-time fund manager. We are super excited to announce that you'll be joined on this episode by our first sponsor, Recess, the furniture startup. So Recess sells everything you need for your home and office and they've sent us one of their products, which is their office chair. And oh my God, it is the most comfortable thing I've ever sat in. I'm actually really jealous of Sachin because I had a feel in it and it is incredibly comfortable. It makes you more productive and I'm stuck on this chair, which is about to break at any minute. Recess has helped thousands of Aussie startups, including the likes of Eucalyptus, Afterwork and Leica. They also have enterprise customers such as Mervac. How you feel when you're working really matters for your productivity and just for your health as well. So if you want to get fitted out with some furniture, whether it's an ergonomic chair or a soundproof box, let us know. We've got discounts for B2C customers for 20%. And if you're a B2B customer, let us know and we'll sort you out. And we didn't want to tell you this because it's not peer reviewed yet. But ever since I've sat in this chair, it's increased my productivity by 300%. Hello and welcome back to the Sachin Adam Show. So today we are lucky enough to be joined by the first ever solo GP in Australia who is a woman, Maxine Minter. Yeah, Maxine, um, big announcement a month ago. Saw that on LinkedIn and it really popped off. Had like thousands of likes and um, yeah, it's just made a lot of waves in our ecosystem. So congrats on that. That's huge. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. I'm so jazzed to be sitting in your lounge room. This is a vibe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, how, how do you feel after the whole reception of being sort of famous in the Australian ecosystem now? Oh, I don't know <laughs> if I'm famous in the Australian ecosystem. Um, I feel really grateful. Like I... So many people reposted it and interacted with it and have shared their reflections on it. And um, I just was overwhelmed by the amount of engagement it got um, and the announcement has got and how into it everyone has been. Um, it was really great validation that like founders do want additional support there um, at that early stage that, uh, that the value proposition of having you know, communities of people behind adding value there, it really matters. Um, so I was, yeah, actually quite quite blown away yeah. by, by the outreach. Yeah, no, it's really awesome. Um, I feel like I was the only person that didn't know who you were because <laughs> I found out about you from the announcement. And then, like, obviously that blew up. And we started talking to people to research this episode. And, like, everybody knows you and everyone has the best things to say. You're so like, incredibly well-networked. Like, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> you know nice. everyone, um, which is really cool. And when doing research for the podcast, I really wanted to figure out like sort of who you were, like what drove you, because you've mm-hmm. done a lot of things. Like you've been an exec coach. Now you're a VC. You've been like an angel investor. You've been a founder. Um, you're at Stanford. You're a lawyer. Like the list goes on. And in the last podcast, you mentioned that there was a thread connecting all those things mm-hmm. that you really love to accelerate people and sort of boost people. And that was sort of your purpose. Mm-hmm. So just tapping into that, I'm really interested when you first found out that that was like your thing that you love to accelerate people. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I It's evolved for me. Um, for a long time, it was that I wanted to prove it was possible. It was a self-focused motivation. And I would say probably in the last three years, four, three or four years, I've noticed a kind of uh, dislocation from that purpose and a reorientation to getting much more joy out of accelerating other people, like watching other people flourish. You know that little moment when you are 
um, explaining a concept to someone or you are riffing up with someone on an idea and you see that like sparkle in the eye, you know, their eyebrows go up or they're, they're like, oh, moment. Like there is just nothing better to me in the world than that moment in someone else now. And I started to notice that like um, deep joy that that gave me probably yeah, like three or four years ago. I got my first couple of inklings of it when I was a lawyer and I was watching junior lawyers come on, kind of come up the ranks behind me and helping them think about their career, helping them navigate that journey. And that was the kind of first little bits that I got. And then, you know, angel investing, um, building a team, uh, helping my co-founders kind of accelerate. Every single one of those moments was like a new data point of what really got me excited. And then becoming an executive coach is like that on steroids. Mm -hmm. And then building a fund is like that with even more steroids. (laughs) So it's really, I think I've just been doubling down on chasing that particular high. Yeah. That's wonderful. I am. We'll dive into that in a second. But Maxine, Adam and I are kind of weird in the sense we are obsessed with what learning about what drives people at their core. And I think a great way to do that is to go back in time. So maybe when you were a kid, what were you like growing up? <laughs> I think it depends on what time of my life. Yeah. Um, Mum tells this really cute story uh, where she said we were walking down the street and we were walking, um, you know, through like a along the street and there was a manhole in the middle of the ground and I kind of pulled up, I was about four years old and I kind of put my little hands on the edge and I looked down the hole like contemplative, I don't know if you've ever seen a contemplative four-year-old face, but it's like (laughs) serious Um, and like thinking big thoughts. And then apparently I looked up at her and I was like, you know how you, my sister's name is Lucy, you know how you and Lucy believe in fairies? And she was like, "Uh, yeah, kind of. And I was like, I believe in bricks. And I think like for her, that is such a crystallizing moment that I have like always been obsessed with like how stuff works. I had these books as a kid of like how bricks were made, how like concrete was made, how like building materials, how chemistry was made. And I really just like got really obsessed with it. And then I did a hard pivot in my teens, just like away from anything intellectual. Mm. If you met me in my teens, (laughs) it was just like an absolute grommet. I was uh, like... Like a surfing grommet or a... No, just like a... I wish I could surf. (laughs) I tried a couple of times. No, just like... Um, I would hang out at the beach. My life was all about just like fun, boys, like doing nothing productive. Yeah. I didn't love school. I was in the bottom of my class for English. And then I don't know what the catalyst was. I thought about this a lot because um, I think if you met me in year eight, you were like, oh, she's going to do like nothing interesting. Mm-hmm. Like she's like not particularly motivated at school. There's nothing, no like bright spark that... I think she's going to go and do something interesting in any field. And then in year 10, which, you know, for us is our like first school leaver exam. Um, I was like, Oh, actually I want to do really well at this. And up until that point I was like, you know, drinking at a young age, like partying. And then I stopped drinking in year 11. I like didn't touch another drink for two years like oh. <laughs> and then just and so everyone else was like discovering alcohol for the first time at, at like what 16 and 17 and I was like eh, old news I want to focus <laughs> on like getting good at English and like getting good at math um and so then just went deep for two years and fell in love with that like intellectual pursuit that feeling of like striving for something and like going really deep on a topic and feeling mastery <laughs> mastery it was high school but like <laughs> you know, diving really deep on a topic and then just the dopamine that that gave me and I um, have been in it ever since. So I don't, like, what drives me? Um, 
I think different things at different times. Yeah. Um, I discovered along the journey a real love of intellectual stimulation. Like I think curiosity. Is that, is that intellectual stimulation like based on getting an outcome or is it just like the love of learning for the sake it's of the learning? It's the love of learning. Okay. It's that feeling of um, understanding how something works mm. at its brass tacks. Yeah. Right? Going all the way down to fundamentals. I'll give you an example. For uh, I wanted to do law at um, for university and uh, I didn't get into my first university preference um, but uh, – got into an okay school in mm. Australia um, and was like, okay, the, my basic understanding of the law, the constitution of Australia is one of the most important things. So what am I going to do? I want to read the constitution from cover to cover, like before I start law school. So I like over my summer, p- folks are on schoolies and I'm like casually flipping through <laughs> like section 27 <laughs> of the Corporations Act being like, I mean, sorry, of the constitution being like, huh, that's so interesting. I didn't know that that principle was in there. Like, I found it genuinely fascinating to understand the brass tacks of it. Wow. Um, which, yeah, there was... But I think it's, like, this feeling of going in and the, like, aha moment for myself I've always really, really loved. Yeah. I resonate with that so much. You almost, like, word to word said, like, what I guess my story is. Really? So I had the intellectual curiosity on, like, just a ridiculous scale from a young age in so many weird ways. And then I became, I guess, very mimetic during high school mm. where it was, like, caring about girls, got, like, really into sport, like, hanging out with the boys, and then re-found that in, like, year nine. And in year 12, I found it to a point where I couldn't hang out with, like, this sort of big footy group at school. I'd go to the library and, like, read biographies, mm. and I just went off that, like... I guess, flywheel, like, intellectual stimulation. So I think it happens to a fair few people. You sort of, like, you get affected by groups and groupthink and whatnot, then you come back to who you are Mm. at your core a little bit. But I think we've discussed this before, and I think we frame this almost unfairly negatively sometimes, where we've we've said that, like, those social experiences in high school, I I also started partying at a very young age, have actually, like, framed the way we interact in the Mm. world today. Because if you just go down that kind of curious intellectual route, it's wonderful. But then we've noticed friends have gone down that route now find it a bit harder to relate to people outside of, the, uh, outside of that. There's a lot of emotional curiosity. intelligence you gain from being in those dynamic and, groups. And groups that maybe that you don't actually resonate with, yeah, but right, yeah. you're stuck in those groups mm-hmm. and that they kind of round you out in a certain way. Absolutely. I think that's, I think that's so interesting. I mean, I think about the, the range of people I spent time with between, say, 13 and 17. Yeah. And, like, they're all over the map. They're, mm-hmm. And they, are, they were doing all kinds of different things. They were from all different walks of life and they are now doing all different kinds of things. Um, like, I used to spend a lot of time around lads. <laughs> <laughs> and they were great. And they were, like, I, like, I still What's your have, number one learning from the lads? <laughs> um, SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> I just... Like, that humour is deep in my bones mm. now. Yeah. And, like, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. And it, like, pops up in weird places. Like, those kinds of things, <laughs> I... Um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's that's beautiful. I also... Um, I do think that the power of, like, who you surround yourself with was is really apparent to me from that yeah. period of time. Like, I think, especially in teenage years, there's, like, certain schools of um, developmental psychology that say, like, that, those periods are when we're so focused on, like, how do we fit in with other people? Like, who am I relative to the people around me? Um, but that stays with us forever, right? We're, like, social animals. We, you know, move in herds. And it's so deeply ingrained in us, like, how influential the people are that you surround yourselves with. 
And I think about this a lot. Like I wish I could go back and be a fly on the wall and work out at what point I watched someone because I'm pretty sure and knowing myself, I'm pretty sure I saw someone do something that I was like, oh, that looks cool. But the thing they got excited about was them focusing. Like my revisionist history is it was a teacher, Mm. a woman called Mrs. Hickey, which she's probably never going to listen to this, but if she ever does, you change my life. (laughs) Um, And I was like, oh, it's actually cool to want to be good at English. Yeah. And I think that was like a gateway realisation that then gave me the permission to be, like enjoy intellectual stimulation. And then I could like feel the dopamine rush from like diving into that curiosity and then I I just like kept going. Um, I think a lot lot about this in the context of like the next generation coming up behind us, right? Mm. Like uh, role models and um, just like being in an environment where there's lots of different options that you Mm. can choose and you can kind of like weave together a version that really resonates with you as opposed to just orienting on the like dominant view of in your case footy girls in my case lads and guys <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to get oh, you tns so um for next time we see yeah. you yeah. um and and maxine just like just exploring that idea a little bit more the first thing that came to mind when you said that is like you change the hierarchies to which you kind of try and um try and climb up mm-hmm. and i think there's this view in tech and in in like life broader that it's like in tech there's not that many hierarchies and whatever did you have you felt that kind of you've had this competitive streak to climb up hierarchies in different domains as you've continued or has it been motivated by that love of learning Mm. it was competition for a while there um like i played competitive basketball growing up um and just like loved the feel feeling of competing interestingly i never paid attention to the score like, I'd always come back from a game and mum would be like, did you win? I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and she's like, like, how is that possible? <laughs> um, like, I knew on the court, but the moment that the game ended, it was yeah. that, like I deleted it from my brain. Yeah. Um, but I know, like, I have definitely felt that competitive feeling. Uh, there is a woman who's been incredibly influential on me, a woman called Megan Cash. Um she introduced into my world the possibility that competition actually isn't the only place to build motivation and build growth from. And the idea of collaboration actually being a much more sustainably powerful place to build motivation, but also kind of generate all kinds of incredible outcomes. It's actually the co in co-ventures. Yeah, is I was going to say that. Yeah, wow. Um, it's also the co in collab, which in hindsight, I didn't mean to associate those brands. I'm just really obsessed with the concept of collaboration. And then and, and I was like, oops, I have accidentally associated these two brands together. But and for, for me now, like after working with Megan, I tap into collaboration, that feeling of connectedness to other people and the excitement of creating something amazing with yeah. someone else as opposed to the place of competition. I find competition usually a long-term destructive place for me now to kind of build from yeah very interesting very interesting going deeper sort of into your i guess career timeline so you did uh law at university and then you spent a number of years in law i don't think it was just one or two it was like Mm. maybe five years was it yeah so i uh, i started practicing uh i joined um clayton newts in my first year of law school so i was like practicing i was a paralegal um at clayton newts from my first year of law school uh so if you count from then until when I left, I think I spent almost a decade yeah. in law firms. Wow. Yeah. I, I'm really interested, like, what kept you in the law for so long? Because it seems like you're wildly passionate about startup and tech, sna- tech mm. now. And often people get into it, like, quite early. Like, they do, like, one, two years law, investment banking, consulting, whatever, straight into tech. It seemed like you really loved law. Like, what sort of kept you into that environment? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing, maybe back to that, like, sphere of influence topic mm. is no one in my world was, like, startups weren't a thing when I was leaving school. Um, it's ridiculously ridiculous for me to say that because my mum was an entrepreneur, right? So she, like, built businesses from a place of necessity to put a roof over our head as a single mum and to have the flexibility to be able to look after us. Um, but... I didn't like the word, word startup or entrepreneur. I didn't have that noun for her and what she did. She just like ran a business and no one else in my life ran a business. And so I think very like, I kind of was like in rejection of that yeah. dynamic. Um, and so wanted to do something that was like incredibly structured, incredibly like much more planable. And so when it came to choosing what course I wanted to do, uh, I chose law. Um, interestingly, I developed the thesis that I wanted to be a criminal barrister based on law and order mm. and then did uh, criminal law at law school and was like, oh, no, this <laughs> is extremely emotionally complex. I do not want to do this. Um, so I that kind of concept of being an entrepreneur wasn't in my vernacular um, really until I went to Stanford. Um, I started my first company in my second year of law school as well, um, kind of hustling on the side uh, more to solve a cash flow focus as opposed to um, like I didn't really have this concept that they could be huge businesses, like all of that just wasn't part of my world. So it took me a while to like learn more about this idea of building businesses. I still didn't have the noun for a startup until actually I left Australia. Wow. Um, I mean, to give you an idea, when I left Australia to move to the US – I think Sam Wong was a principal at Blackbird. Um, a friend of ours, of mine, introduced me to Sam and was like, you guys should chat because I wanted her to lecture at a course I was teaching. Um, and I had no idea what VC was. I didn't, like, it just wasn't anywhere part of my ecosystem. So I don't, I don't know if I can go back and say, mm-hmm. like, oh, I would have loved it if I had known that that was possible at the time. Um, but I did, like, I love the law. It's intellectually very stimulating. It's very structured. I got very lucky. I worked with people that I loved. I got a lot out of. I worked with a man called Dan Friedman, um, who was the deal guy for Lou Gershner. I don't know if you're from IBM. Um, he was kind of one of those like uh, famous CEOs. Um, and he was great. He's a New Yorker. He had his initials like in gold emboss on his sleeves. He only wore, wore Hermes ties. Still wears, who's you know still rocking them as ties has oh. like a gold Rolex. He was just couldn't be more different than <laughs> the other people. Such in the a juxtaposition from the startup world as right, well. Yeah, <laughs> but he was a, a firecracker. Like he just like held no prisoners. I learned so much from him. Um, was really he's a huge mentor of mine, and I still think about the way that he shows up in deals today. I think I was just really lucky. I was in an environment where um, there was lots to learn. It was fast paced. Um, I got lucky with the people that I met and they kind of gave me the opportunity to spread my legs, spread, not my legs, my wings in. Spread my wings intellectually and it was excellent. And then it got to the point where I didn't feel like I was, I was feeling that dopamine of learning anymore and was like ready for my next thing. And, and Maxine, I believe you had a moment on a Bondi Hill um, Kind of, kind of leading into that next thing. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I, um, I think there's a point at which you, when you're kind of coming to uh, a moment where your brain isn't feeling as intellectually stimulated, 
the kind of the um, Shane Lewin model of change, call it the unfreezing moment, right? The moment where your brain suddenly is aware that there's other options for you. Um, for me, it was that feeling starting to feel bored, like starting to feel like I wasn't stretching and learning. Um, and that I didn't feel particularly like nourished by my job. But I'd been lucky enough to taste these little moments of what they could known as flow state. Yeah. Um, and I was constantly and still am constantly on the hunt for the thing that I um I flourish at. Mm. Right. Like finding flow for maximal period of time, that kind of genius zone concept, although I didn't have the language for it at the time. Um so I was kind of sitting on the hill trying to think about like what am I really good at? Like where what should I be doing next? What should I be thinking about next? I think I want to do something in business, but maybe I want to do it in law, like what, what should I be thinking about next? And I was reflecting on the things that really deeply brought me joy and sitting on the Bondi Hill doing a spreadsheet, looking at the beautiful view and being like, I can get lost in a spreadsheet, like planning a spreadsheet, modelling out things for hours and the world just passes me by. But like sit me down and ask me to review an MSA, it's like half a minute goes by and I'm like checking my watch, like this is just horrible. And so it was that first kind of aha moment for me of like, oh, there are actually things that I can do that generate value that I also really love to do. What might be more? Like where else could I find those moments and how could I staple all of those things together in something that will pay me to do those things? And so that was the kind of beginning of a search journey um, to find a portfolio of activities that brings me that joy. And, I mean, you mentioned before I've kind of roved around a lot. I find for me a portfolio of things is the, is the best way to, to bring me joy. This is one of the things I love the most about VC is you have to be, you have to rove around so much. Like your brain, you have to get deep on all kinds of different topics and different skills all at once. And that variety for me is really wonderful. So on that narrative, you ended up at Sanford Law School. I did. You didn't start as an MBA, but you ended up basically doing the MBA coursework. Mm -hmm. And at some point in Stanford, you got sort of enamoured by tech and that whole ecosystem. What was that perspective change like when you went from being sort of a law person to being immersed in this tech world? Mm -hmm. Like how, how did your mindset change when that was going on? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, so I went, I went to Stanford. I chose Stanford because it does like it's well known for interdisciplinary work. Um, and my thesis going to Stanford um, was I want to go and spend time in the US and see what the future looks like for the law and then try to bring it back to Australia. Um, so I wanted to go and like learn business, but also wanted to go and spend time in the CS school. Um, and spending time on the business, like in the business ca campus, it's called the GSB, um, and just like the pace of new ideas, the dynamism of the people there, I just felt so much more at home. Like the law is a wonderful place. It's very intellectually rigorous and it's quite rigid, right? Like being intellectually curious is not really celebrated at all. Whereas in, in business or especially the kind of GSB startup ecosystem version of business, it's everything, right? That level of curiosity. I think one of the huge unlocks for me was um, there's a woman called Fern Mendelbaum. Um, she runs and ran a course called Entrepreneurship from Diverse Perspectives. And <laughs> I, uh, all, almost all of the subjects I did at the GSB, I had to pitch the professor to let me into the course 
Um, and tell them like why it would be useful to have me in their classroom, like what I would add, any kind of extra things I would do to try to get in. Um, and Fern let me into her class. Um, and Fern's approach is to have folks come in uh, on a panel who don't look like your kind of standard founder or don't build the standard business. And it just blew my mind. It also was one of the first moments where I identified my mom as an entrepreneur. It was like there's business people and then there was like my mom hustling her heart out in a kind of yoga-related business. And then it was like the first time that those two Venn diagrams came together and I was like, oh, shit. That is like she is out there hustling, being an entrepreneur in a different way than what Australia celebrates, right? Like at the time there was no – I don't know anyone – who was like her, who had similar views to her, that built an interesting, like built a big business. Whereas in the States, you've got like all kinds of incredible businesses built by like raging hippies, which my mum is. This reminds me of a quote you said in your last podcast. You said in Australia, there's a race to the middle. Mm. There's in America, everyone's sort of on the extremes. Mm. And there's this sort of tall poppy-like syndrome where we converge on a similar sort of mentality. But there's wacky people in America. Did that start to influence you? Yeah, absolutely. They like celebrate outlier behavior. Like everyone is trying to be different from each other, which has pros and cons to be clear. And obviously this is a generalization, right? There is like world-class innovation outlier work coming out of Australia. But my experience of of the kind of contrast between Australia and the US is uh, everyone or a lot of people are celebrating outlier behavior, Everyone's trying to be different, find ways to be different. It's very like individualism is built into the cultural fabric of the US. Whereas in Australia, it's very much focused on like collectivism. The norm of collectivism is strongly ingrained in our society. And so everyone kind of um, chooses to find moments to be more similar than they are more different. An example, um, in lots of places in Sydney, you can find almost the exact same outfit and the exact same shoes. Sorry Hills. <laughs> Sorry Hills, yeah. Bondi, yeah. like Redfern. They're different. Like each of those places is different in the same way. Whereas it's really hard to find that same density of the people that look exactly the same. Like maybe the marina in San Francisco, you can probably find that. But like in the mission, no. It's just incredibly more diverse because people are finding ways to be different. Um but again, I think but that I imagine there would be a lot of southern states, for example, that are more traditional where people dress the same. Are you talking just about San Francisco and California? Uh, and LA yeah. and New York, but such a yeah, great call out. Yeah, sense. the US mm. is like incredibly diverse. I could mm. make any broad brush statement here and I could probably find a solid chunk of the US mm. to meet that broad brush mm. statement. I, I should qualify that with I spent time in – New York, LA, yep. and SF. So that that is true from my experience of those places. Mm. Like Nashville, don't know. Austin's kind of like that. That's where I spend a lot of time now. Um, but it also is, yeah, you know, has different uh, elements. Probably give me a pretty crazy perspective shift because we definitely know how, like, I guess, mimetic again people in Sydney are. But until I see it in America, it's probably only then really going to shift. Because now I think about it, like Paddington, Surrey Hills, Bondi. Like, look at how you dress. Like, <laughs> yep, <laughs> Paddington boy at heart or Darlington, Darlinghurst boy. But yeah, everyone's like very similar um, in in a lot of ways. Now for a quick break from the podcast. Now, Satch, we've been wanting to hire someone for a while, haven't we? 
Yeah, this editing is getting a bit tedious and I can see the bags under your eyes. Yeah, it takes a long time and on top of full-time work, it's, it's really difficult, but I wouldn't know where to start when we're hiring someone. Yeah, I actually met someone that does um, video and podcast editing when I was backpacking, but they live in the Philippines and if we tried to hire them, we'd probably break a law. <laughs> Look, that sounds like a great idea, but there's just so much paperwork to do when hiring someone. Yeah, honestly, I have no idea how to even get started. But we're lucky. We've got a solution here because our friends at Employment Hero have a new global teams product that helps you set up teams from around the world, even when you're not in the same physical location. Yeah. And what's even cooler is you get access to global talent teams, which really helps when trying to hire people from around the world. And it's pretty cool because the person who started all this was our friend, Ben Thompson. He's a friend of the podcast. He's been on the show before. (laughs) Absolute legend. Um, And it's great to partner with him. And here's the kicker. We've actually spoken to Ben and we can get you the first month's management fee completely free. Um, All you have to do is go to Employment Heroes website, um, click request a demo and mention such an Adam and they'll sort you guys out. Now back to the episode. And Maxine, I think this is a good place to segue into the executive coaching world. Now this this interests me massively because I think since I've started to join VC, I've noticed so many of the top performers now have exec coaches. And you obviously had this experience having one and you found it so kind of meaningful and profound that you decided to become one yourself. Mm. Can you talk about your top learnings from from the time as an exec coach? Yeah. Um, Well, I think the first thing to say is that – one of the things that I found almost universal in the US was this uh, desire to be the top of your field, right? Like everyone is like, I want to be the best at what I do. And it is a very short intellectual leap from that to I want to find people to help me be the best at what I do. And then for a lot of them, they've been elite athletes and they're like, well, in the sports world, I had someone who like watched my game and like, helped me think about how to do this better and applied frameworks from other people and like knew the process and had seen multiple people go through this process of this performance uplift. And so it's they're only short intellectual leaps from I want to be the best in my game to I want an executive coach to help me be excellent. When I first came back to Australia in 2020, I heard from folks a lot more of the like executive coaches are therapy adjacent as opposed to performance adjacent. I think that's absolutely shifting now, but my experience was absolutely that, right? Like I think in the kind of sports analogy, I was out there on my, on the field, giving it my absolute best, but I don't think it was good enough to do an excellent job. And it definitely wasn't the fastest I could develop out there on the field. And then having a coach kind of experiencing that difference for me of having a coach being like your shots off the way you're communicating. This is different is like not landing helping me just come to terms with the fact that leadership actually doesn't matter what you do and say. It's what Mm. they heard and what they do with that information. Mm. And helping normalise that for me and that being a huge unlock, like all of those little moments, it changed what I think would have been one of the hardest journeys of my life into just so fun, right? It's like back to that, like you're constantly in that dopamine of learning. It makes all of those moments that like don't go as planned or that are really scary, this really exciting fodder you can take to your work with your executive coach. Can, like, can you give us some examples of some of the shifts yeah. that you went through? Uh, I mean, so many. The collaboration one was an yeah. example one of one, right? Like I like take it off in a circumstance where I'm feeling that – do you know that feeling when you, uh, you feel like you're competing with someone and losing? Mm. Do you yeah. know that feel like what that feels like in your stomach and what it does to your performance brain? 
like on the day and you're yeah. just like like flustered about it. So like taking that into my work with my executive coach and being like, I'm pissed off. I feel like I'm losing. I'm like, I can't work out why we can't just like solve this problem, especially in relation to like interpersonal dynamics. Mm. I took that to them and she was like, well, has it occurred to you that maybe your mindset is influencing how this is playing out for you? There's a really interesting experiment um, or kind of exercise that we do in some coaching sessions, which is you ask two people to put candy on either side and you set up like this mm. and you say, okay, the objective of the game is you need to maximise the amount of candy that each of you achieves. You have a minute to do it. How do you do it? And because of this setup, most people think competition. Yeah. So they engage and they push on each other and they're like shaking and they're laughing. But actually the people that think collaboration first are the people that maximize because you just give in and you do this mm. really, really quickly. And then you each get more candy. Mm. So it's these like aha moments, which my coach led me to, which I then took back to my executive work and like tried them out and was just like, whoa, this is like a true inflection point in the way that I work with my team members. I work, the way I work with my board members, the way I work with my investors. Like there's so much more possible because of that adjustment. Or it's a place for me to commiserate in a place, like a space that is probably the only appropriate place as a CEO or a kind of founder to vent about some of these things. Mm. You know, there are lots of things in this self-development journey that just feel like unfair and painful and you don't know what's going on and you just want to vent but it's not okay to vent to your teammates it's not okay to vent to your investors like those have serious consequences you can take it into a space with your executive coach and be like blah and then then be like okay uh i think in between all of that blah there's like these two insights what do you think and you're like yeah i think that's true and that feels really nice for someone to catch that for me in your coaching role you coach a lot of impressive people like people at notion i think played link tree like Top, cream of the crop like mm. silicon valley startups i'm really interested in what were like the top problems people were having when you're coaching them like i'm sure everyone has a sort of different life but what were some of the standout things that people needed help in yeah so i would say first thing co like the coaches at colab have, have coached those people me personally um i have coached the linktree team on that list um but the great thing about the role at colab building colab was that we match executive coaches to those founders mm. and so we're talking to those folks and like understanding what are the key areas and then working quite closely with the coaches so um what are the key areas i mean so much of it is interpersonal dynamics and soft skills coming back to the point that i made before as an executive as you are scaling up an organization you are measured not by what you said or you intended to say or how you wanted to show up you are measured by what your team does with that information so what we're talking about here is soft skills communication and soft skills and it can be incredibly frustrating to have been excellent in your tactical area and your analytical area and then come into this environment and not be able to control it like code for example mm -hmm. so we spend a lot of time with executives helping them work out how to influence other people which the flow-on effect of that is how to get the most out of your team how to construct incentive environments, how to construct a team that is thriving and really enjoying working with each other, um, how to get the most out of yourself, so the like psychology of your own performance and watching the way that you perform 
and finding the best ways that you work and then leaning into those. Um, Working out how two individuals can work together, co-founder dynamics in particular are particularly tough to resolve. And so working with a coach is a wonderful place to spend time there. And then lots of like, I have all of these disparate problems I potentially should be solving. What do I need to be focusing on? Like, how can I strategize what I'm focusing on first? How should I be thinking about the way that I am building the business over time? And then, so those are all like immediate requests, immediate, really hot button issues that folks come to us with. And then there's, you know, as a founder, you're constantly having to keep in mind two to five time scales at any one moment. It's like this week, this year, my next funding round, the kind of short term competitive dynamics or the short term ecosystem I'm in, and then the like long term game. And so there's a similar thing with coaching, right? They're thinking about who do I need to be as a CEO or CTO or CMO, whatever kind of seat they're sitting in. Who do I need to be in a year and a half? Because the thing about success of these companies is it's so dependent on you as a founder or you as an executive, which also means the company can only move as fast as you're able to move or it outpaces you and you need to move out of the way and so human development isn't linear it's not even exponential it's like this weird wiggly loop where you do nothing for ages and then you're like you have this huge unlock and then you kind of plateau for a bit in a huge unlock and for anyone that's spent time trying to accelerate their own learning you've seen that in your own dynamic and so you're thinking about i need to invest today to give me a fighting chance of being where i think i need to be in six months a year when you put it that way, like hats off to the people that are founders that go from like zero dollars of income to like hundreds of millions or billion, like people like Zuckerbergs of the world, the Collison brothers, Mel Perkins, like you're playing so many different roles along the mm-hmm. way. Like the way you put it, like your revenue is going exponential, but you as a person, you can only go so fast. Yeah. So it's, it's very admirable. And, and often the skills that get you to kind of the first a million yeah, don't yeah. are completely different from the, from the next million or the, the next hundred million, right? Absolutely, yeah. You mentioned Linktree before. Alex's ability to learn is just incredible. You know, he has that incredible combination of low ego enough to uh, come at a new problem and be like, I don't know what I'm doing, but also be influential as he's leading a team of very high performance, high capability, incredible team members, right? He's like constantly moving between those two dynamics and then is just zooming up this learning curve. I've I've seen him go back to beginner's mindset so many times in really high stakes environment and just learn incredibly fast, absorb incredible amounts of information and zoom up that curve. Mm. It's truly incredible what folks are like – really great founders are able to learn and at the pace that they're able to learn Mm. yeah it sounds really simple but like a lot of successful people like maybe in a more corporate environment you could never like imagine them putting the beginner's hats on and starting again on a new topic so people that are able to like diminish that ego and like you know be humble like that's a that's a massive unlock Yeah. yeah absolutely um, and this actually comes from one of your good friends and one of my bosses, Jax. And um, she kind of told me to ask you about what have been the skills of transition from exec coaching over to the VC world? Mm. Making, kind of establishing a rapport with someone quick enough that mm. you know that you're on, you're on their side, yeah. right? Like as an executive coach, my job, my sole job description is to stand in your corner and help you be successful. 
Speaking tactically for a second, how, how do you usually do that um, in founder calls or even with people you're coaching? Sometimes it's just being explicit about it. Okay. Right. I actually think the most underused communication skill is being explicit. Mm. It's just to name it, right? Like this, there's a framework I really like to encourage folks think, to think about, which is impact and intention, which is my intention might be one thing, but my impact is something really different, right? I might have intended to communicate something to you really quickly, but the impact was I made you feel like you didn't matter. And so just like, just naming, like, I want to be clear here. I like my goal in this conversation is X, Y, Z. What I often do when I'm meeting companies is I name up front, like, these are the things I look for when I'm talking to companies in later stage diligence, like these are my open questions. Mm. I want, I'm signaling to you or being explicit, like I want to get excited about your business. These are the things I need to see. I want to get excited about you as a founding team. Like help me understand why you're the best fit for this industry. It does incredible things. I strong recommend, try it out. Just be like super explicit and... Mm. Um, the other element to that, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the concept of radical candor, the power of kindness, like the power of genuinely care, like feeling in your heart care for the person that you're talking about and letting yourself feel that will likely mean that anything that you communicate comes with that emotional communication of kindness mm. and care because you genuinely care about them. You know, you want the best for them you probably know that investing in them if they're not a good fit for the fund is not the nicest mm. thing to do for them. Do you think there's limits on that? Like let's say hypothetically you're in back-to-back calls every mm. every day for months and you're tired and you're stressed and you're burned out. Do you still have that ability to bring that kind of candor? Is that part of who you are? Um, no, I don't think it's a and like a never-ending pit of kindness yeah. and candor, but mm. I do try to monitor the point at which I am not bringing that anymore because okay. I know that I lose efficiency and effectiveness then. Yeah, okay. So it, I, I put it in the same category as my ability to form a sentence, right? Like if I couldn't form a sentence, I probably wouldn't take the call. Yeah. So if I can't muster, like if I'm so, if I'm t- so tired that I can't muster care mm. for them, then I also shouldn't take the call. Yeah. Mm. There is nothing worse than entering a call resentful that that person is taking your time because I can guarantee you that person, especially for founders, their time is way more valuable than mine. Mm. And it does not feel nice to get on a call with me and be like, she's annoyed, she's here. What was actually the point that made you want to move into the world of angel investing and venture capital? Because there's definitely a lot of correlation between what you're doing as a coach mm. and then being sort of a coach to founders and that human element. But then investing is also this highly analytical game where you're breaking down industries and companies. Was that something you had in you for a long time or was there some sort of like organic leap that you just went into it? Mm. I think, I mean, law is analytical. Mm. Um, my best subjects were maths and like rational subjects. Actually a fun fact for you, um, if you had if you and I had had this conversation when I was 17, I would have been like, don't like humans, think they're a waste of time, <laughs> untrustworthy, not interested. Except <laughs> if they're lads. <laughs> yeah, except <laughs> if they're lads. Maybe that's why I like them so much. Like lads very rarely lead, lead with the emotion. Um, I think it was a journey for me to discover I was doing that out of a, a place of self-protection. And then now like humans are my favorite invention in the world right? Like absolute favorite. So I think I find analytical and rational thinking quite a comfortable place. Um, 
I have trained myself to love emotional engagement um, and now I genuinely love it. And especially pre-seed investing, which is very different than even like seed and series A um, and definitely B and later. Like it is a combination of analytical and um, like emotional engagement. Um, and I love both. I get an enormous amount of joy for both. I feel the same kind of um, like unlock joy of working out how our system works on the analytical side as I feel when I, you know, someone shares a piece of information about how they tick and I like connect to them on the emotional side. I feel it in the same, like the same level of joy. Mm-hmm. I'd love to dig a little bit deeper into like how you think about investing as well. You said you sort of get that unlock from like analytically breaking down products and markets, mm. but obviously there's a massive people element at, at Preseed, you're assessing people, yeah. their sort of determination to go all the way. And one of your quotes in the last podcast was, I think it was about the sequoia tree. And obviously you're trying to plant a seed and it essentially becomes a big tree. And you really look for, I think you said grit and growth mindset. Mm. It was. So I'm interested in how you see that in people and how you assess that in people. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm standing on shoulders of giants here. There's been lots of academic work on both of those topics um, about you know, how you test it, how you, um, like what it means, what it correlates to, etc. On For Carol, the growth mindset comes from a, um, a person called Carol Dweck or Dr. Carol Dweck. Um, both of these are self-reported and you are looking both at your stated mindset and also your previous performance. So I ask a bunch of questions around you know, what have you spent time on in the past and um, try to kind of understand in narrative format how folks, you know, what their life journey has been like to date and then also diligence that, like spend time talking to people that know them if I don't already know them. Um, and then self-reported, like how would they communicate, you know, their thought of themselves against that. Also looking for self-awareness there, mm. right? Like if you say to me, I'm extremely gritty, and I ask you what was the hardest thing that ever happened in your life and you were like that one time I got a nine and a half instead of a ten on a, you know, I'm, I'm just probably yeah. not going to, I'm not convicted that you've really experienced hardship mm. and you've really experienced an opportunity for you to be gritty and like push through or you just didn't tell me about it. Mm. How do you um how do you process like if someone says something to you but you don't feel like it's genuine? Like I, a lot of people can mm. prepare answers to these kinds of questions. Is there a way that you think about um, especially in the age of Zoom, I feel like it's hard to feel if something's genuine to someone. Right. I This is maybe, to Jax's question, um, a skill that is from the coaching practice through, like asking questions and having a bullshit meter mm. um, is high. Like, of course, I'm not going to catch that 100%. Like yeah. deception is deception because, and like someone who's very good at deceiving, um, that's where diligence comes in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you'd be you'd be surprised by um, like how open folks are looking to be. And actually, I think an absence of openness, an absence of openness is a is a sign that someone is like uncomfortable in the dynamic that mm. we are in. Either they are uncomfortable about the information they're sharing with me or they're uncomfortable in the dynamic we're in. Mm. And so there's a kind of element of professional judgment there of like pushing to make them more comfortable. Yeah. Or they're just not going to open up. Now, the other thing that I think about in those circumstances is my opinion is that to be truly fast in your development journey, 
you have to be able to be vulnerable with people. And I come back to the like Alex's of the world, mm. like that bravery to go, I don't know. I should know, but I don't know. Mm. Can you help me learn? Mm. Like that takes skill. Yeah. That takes a certain mindset. And if that person's not demonstrating that in our conversation, it's unlikely that they're demonstrating that in other really high stakes moments. And that's yeah. where the big learning comes from. That's a fascinating reflection. And, and Maxine, I realise that, you know, we've kind of traversed around co-ventures, but we haven't mentioned it specifically. <laughs> Would love to talk about why you started the firm, what you hope to achieve and kind of what the next couple of years looks like. Yeah. Um, why did I start the firm uh, was a couple of things. One is um, I saw a, just a huge opportunity in the Australian market to own the pre-seed stage, yep. right? No one... No fund is doing that, just that, specialising in that stage. Think about what first round did for seed in the Bay Area, but doing that for pre-seed in Australia. Um, so I think there's a huge commercial opportunity. But my, like, the thing that gets me really excited is where there is kind of intersecting opportunity, right? So huge commercial opportunity, huge impact opportunity. Like if you think about if we do this really well, we will accelerate the next generation of Australian unicorns and with that will come all kinds of career, wealth, life opportunities for all of the people that are part of those. Like I reflect on my own journey from Australia to the Bay Area, but also to the UK, to all kinds of different places. Like there's, there's this time-honoured tradition of Australians going elsewhere and having these incredible experiences. Imagine if you could do that in an organisation where you had a connection back mm-hmm. to Australia. Like that is amazing. Then in a kind of... Um, economic impact for Australia if we do it very well and if this ecosystem continues to flourish. Like, to your point before, Adam, when I left in 2017, I, like, the word entrepreneur and startup was nowhere in my vernacular. It's now the sixth largest employer in Australia. That's incredible growth in a very short period of time and it's only getting started. Like, yes, it's a rough patch right now. It's bumpy out there, but I think we can all agree it's not going anywhere anytime soon. So I think if you just being part of that opportunity creation and wealth creation. And then the last intersecting piece was um, kind of coming back to that thread of how lucky I've been to have people in my life that have influenced me to think differently, have influenced me to expand my world. Uh, a good friend of mine, Soph McNaught, we were sitting in Chrissy Field in San Francisco together And I was talking about maybe potentially thinking about raising a fund. And she was like, has there ever been an Australian woman that has raised a fund by herself? And I was like, huh, no, no, I don't think so. Like, I don't know of any. And she was like, what do you think are the reference points for any great angel investors in Australia to think, hey, I should start a fund by myself versus great angel investors in the U.S.? And I was like, that's true. There's not that many like people in the ecosystem talking about why you should raise a solo GP fund, like either women or men. And I kind of got thinking about what is the compound effect of if lots of people now are like, oh, I want to start a fund. I want to scale my angel investing. I want to start a fund, which I'm already starting to see folks get really excited about that. So um, the intersection of all of those things together is just like it was a no-brainer. It had to be done. Mm, that's awesome. 
And anyone that's gone into VC, you go in it because you want to win. You want to get those sort of top quintile returns. Mm-hmm. You want to have multi-generational funds and whatnot. And so, and VC, it's a very difficult game. There's mm-hmm. a lot of elements to it and it's a lot more competitive in Australia now versus when you left. So I'm really interested in like, how do you think you're going to win? And maybe a way to answer that is, what are your superpowers? Like, wh- what are you going to enable co-ventures? How are you going to enable them? Yeah, I think, so on the how are we going to win I think good strategy wins. Like we know this time and time again from businesses in the ecosystem, good strategy always wins. And good strategy looks like a differentiated customer insight supported by a superior financial model. And I don't know how differentiated the customer insight, it was kind of like an open secret, but you talk to any founder in the Australian ecosystem and you ask them what it's like to raise pre-seed and they will give you just like a list of expletives. Like, it's really hard. And the data backs this up, right? If you look at the way that valuation change moves at pre-seed and, like, angel rounds relative to seed rounds, they're not correlated, but they should be, right? Suggesting that pre-seed doesn't have a lot of fully integrated actors. Like, no one's doing it institutionally properly. Because rationally it should move slightly behind but it should move in correlation to seed because one is supporting the next and in the Australian ecosystem we have a 17th of the amount invested per GDP in Australian founders relative to the US so it is a very underfunded ecosystem our thesis is about finding companies in those ecosystems and accelerating them to the US so there's a stage arbitrage and then an ecosystem arbitrage And that, I think, is unique. And we are building competitive moats around that such that the better we are at that, the more we will compound. And we are the first person to do it, which gives us a nice head start to show that it's possible. I feel like more and more people are like, oh, yeah, I guess that could work. But when I first started pitching this, people were like, (laughs) I actually had one person ask me, um, okay, interesting, but do you think there's enough good ideas in Australia to run a pre-seed fund? And they, they're, LP, they're an LP of Blackbird, SquarePeg and Airtree. And I was like, how do you think that a funnel works? <laughs> like it's small and then balloons at seed and then goes down? Like it, like what? <laughs> Why had no one done it before though? Because if it was like quite an open secret, as you said, mm. and people had been talking about it, often there'd be a reason why nobody had entered that stage. Why yeah. was that? Oh, that's a great, great question. I don't know. I think one of the benefits I had is that I learned to invest in the US. I learned to think about pre-seed in a US style and that ecosystem has been compounding, you know, for many decades before the, US, the Australian ecosystem really got started. And so maybe the insight is no one is investing in pre-seed in the way that the US invests in pre-seed and that's the opportunity down here. Like there are people writing pre-seed checks but no one's doing it as a like thoughtful stage. It also might be a moment in time and that um, if you look at the progression of the US ecosystem, um, like as more money moves into the earliest stage funds, they get bigger and behind them they open up a new asset class, like a new stage, which then people start investing in. So, for example, in 2016 and 2017 when I started looking at you know, raising capital in the US, no one was talking about pre-seed, like that wasn't a thing, but they were also writing, you know, 500k seed checks. 
But as those funds grew and they start writing like a million, two million seed checks, well, it becomes really hard to write a two million seed check into something that is just an idea. And so it kind of opens up a new investment class underneath it at earlier stage and then we name it something new like pre-seed. So I think it's probably an intersection of those those things. Mm, makes a lot of sense. Um, segueing a little bit to kind of how you're managing your crazy life now, right? Um, you, were, you were saying before you were inundated with founders and people reaching out after the announcement, which is wonderful. But as an exec coach, you know that, you know, there, there, there's a way to balance your life. And you got married a year ago. You're living between three cities. How, how are you managing everything? I um, One of the great trainings I got as a lawyer yeah. was measuring my life in six-minute increments. <laughs> <laughs> and I still track my time religiously. I am in love with Sunsama. I don't know if you've used it. It's a tool that gives you a, like, uh, beginning and end of day kind of meditative process to plan your day and close out your day um, and pull in tasks from Asana, from email, etc. So I plan my day very religiously and kind of live religiously by my calendar. Um, I constantly ask myself the question, am I working on the highest leverage thing? Yeah. I ask myself on a daily basis, what gave me joy and what sapped my energy? Because I, my experience has been working on maximum number of things that bring me joy allows me to work for longer and feel really great at the end of the day. Um, and so I focus really heavily on, am I working on exactly the right thing or the highest leverage thing and have to make some kind of hard trade-offs, think about either not doing things um, like leveraging my time. So working with other folks to help me um, or reprioritizing you know, the thing that I can do over the timeline, I can do it. Now, to be clear, that doesn't solve all, <laughs> yeah. all of this. Like there are days that are longer than I would like them to. It's a constant calibration. Mm. I, so I work with an executive coach still. Um, he and I are constantly talking about this topic. Uh, I would say it comes up in our sessions. Mm, probably one in three Wow. at the moment is like, I am overwhelmed I don't feel like I'm working on the right thing. I'm not spending enough time on the thing that I know is really important. Like help me think about strategies. Um, a lot of that, there's an interesting thing with executive coaching where some people approach executive coaching and like, you give me the tool, I know how to use it done. Actually, we're talking about soft skills here. So it is really easy for me to say like, these are the frameworks, but the mastery is knowing what tool to use when. So an example, if I, I don't play soccer, but imagine I gave you a rule book on soccer and how to be excellent at soccer. And it's like you slightly squat, you like run a lot, you kick with this part of your foot. These are the complexities of the team dynamics or when you kick, where you should run. The likelihood that I pick you up and then put you on that field and you are a world-class soccer player is like exactly zero. So it's like it's incredibly frustrating in some ways in that you constantly come back to the same frameworks and are kind of being readjusted on those same frameworks. But it, yeah, I think like time management, crucial, energy management, crucial, mm. joy auditing, crucial. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finding out your work-life harmony, yeah. right? Like this idea of doing things that nourish you and allow you to cross-train, so allow you to spend time doing something that gives you rest but still is a place of 
productivity, maybe. Um, I spend a lot of time doing things that are kind of cross-training my thinking or cross-training my information gathering. Examples? Um, advisory work. Uh, I sit on the Stanford Australia Association mm. Committee. Um, so this is what you did to relax. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I, like um, thinking about how I can implement system-level changes for our alumni in Australia, um, chatting to people from very different ages and stages and industries because it's really easy, especially in our ecosystem and especially right now when we're really busy, is just to spend time thinking and talking about tech. And I think that is incredibly dangerous to become siloed in tech, especially right now while the macro is moving around us so quickly. And so talking to people in government, talking to people who are in mining, talking to people who are in education, talking to people who are at various stages of their career journey, I think is crucially important to make well-informed decisions. Otherwise, you know, you do silly things like fund, like crazily fund a tool that is only relevant to VCs. Yeah. Um, so it's those kinds of like opportunities to cross-train that I really enjoy. Um, and then connected time with other people I mm. find really matters to me. So time with my partner, time with my family, time with my friends. And those are the kind of what, the Eisenhower top right, so they're important but not urgent. Mm. And I know for myself I have all kinds of goals around what I have to achieve or what I want to achieve for my business, both for CoLab, for CoVentures, and they have metrics and so they're really easy to measure and they're really – so I, like, focus on them. And if I don't have set expectations on myself of time connected with others, then I'll consistently deprioritize them in a way that doesn't serve me long term. Mm. And so being thoughtful and – observant of what I need in my life for proper work-life harmony because otherwise I'll just like I'm like a kid in a candy store you know you like get in there and you just like gouge with candy mm -hmm. and then you're like oh, I'm gonna be sick right <laughs> yeah. it's like having enough salad in your yeah. day and enjoying like I mean salad makes it sound like I don't enjoy spending time with these people but you know what I mean <laughs> like it's like having balance yeah. my yeah. version of balance a tasty salad very tasty salad maybe some candy <laughs> walnuts in it <laughs> it, it seems like being an tech coach and having one has just been so beneficial because I think we meet so many people in the ecosystem who are just stressed all the time. Mm. Like, you know, you're a founder, you're working crazy hours or maybe you're a VC and you do like content on top of that. Mm. And like your whole life is you're just, just talking about me. For example. Sasha's has been very stressed lately. But like some people, your minds are just constantly filled with ideas mm. and analysis and it's very, very hard to switch off. But it seems like, like you said, you've got a really good harmony with it. Like you're actual, actually able to audit how you are mm. sort of every day every week and sort of readjust so yeah I, I mean especially if your job is to make decisions right and as a founder of actually a founder all the way up one of the highest leverage things you do every day is make decisions that impact your today those like multiple time horizons I was talking about and if you are constantly in fight or flight you are you have like neurologically hamstrung yourself and increase the likelihood massively that you will make bad decisions. You'll prioritise the wrong thing and not know that you're prioritising what you're prioritising. And so if you just orient on how can I be the best at what I do, the logical conclusion is not be stressed all the time. Mm. Make, like, give yourself, yourself 
space to think and make decisions from a good place and know when good decisions are made. And the thing I have noticed is that if people kind of get into that hustle culture and feel like they have to be stressed all the time, it's just, it, it is a bad cycle and executive coaches are a great way to be like, yo, you're stressed. Yeah. Pause. When can we make this decision at another time? Yeah, I think we notice this all the time. Like I often have days where all these deadlines stack up, one on top of the other, like editing a podcast and heaps of deadlines at work, maybe like a tech event, and then we've got to do a podcast at night. And it's like you can have busy days but still feel in harmony and then you can have busy, stressful days. It feels like you're just constantly so on edge. Totally, yeah. Yeah. The context switching. Mm. I find the context switching the one like the killer. And what's infuriating is it's often just a really simple fix which is a 30-minute calendar audit. Mm. And then you write down, like, after the day is over, what made you feel stressed? What made you feel scattered? And then you adjust your calendar the next week. Mm. So something that's helped to me as well is this notion of, like, uh, working like a lion, like sprinting for a bit and resting. Because mm. I think I'm someone that, like, likes to work quite consistently, but sometimes there are deadlines and sometimes there's things that happen, but often we just go on to the next one. Totally. And it's um, that period of rest and actually just like sleeping in for a morning or going to the beach or, or, or doing that. something like that is, and also for creative work, especially massive realization. Mm. Like I am 10 times more creative when I'm well rested. Mm. I actually have time to go for a walk without my phone. And those are when like the really good insights come. Right. I, I couldn't underline that more. I think mm. it's so important. I think the thing, the additional thing I would add to that is we are all unique. We're natural organisms. We don't operate like physics and maths. And so having universal laws about what unlocks performance for you, mm. what unlocks performance for you and for me is silly in my opinion. Mm. So they are directional, but actually the work for us is the nuance and adjusting it to you. So like your version of lion might actually look very different to Adam's yep. and looks very different to mine. Mm. Like, and it's running experiments and watching and compounding on those insights is where you start to unlock like truly joyful work. And that has true work-life harmony for you as opposed to like, you know, I'm like, oh, Lucy runs her day like this. I have to run my day like that and that's the only way for me to be efficient. As As opposed to you like watching and reflecting, oh, I actually loved that. Like how creative was I on the day where I gave myself that mental space or that free thinking time? Yep. That's so interesting. Okay, if I have a project where the hi- the highest level of success is creativity, I am going to keep this in the brain box to give myself some free thinking time beforehand where I de-stress and I come in and I hit those leverage points. Mm. My coach often talks about this dynamic of leverage, right? There are some moments where what you need to do is just turn the crank faster and faster and faster. But as you get more and more senior in your career – the decisions you make and the things you do become more and more high leverage. And so it's thinking about how, you know, if I get that right, that's wonderful. That has compounding effects throughout a whole bunch of things. But if I get that wrong, it also has compounding effects throughout everything. And so not measuring efficiency as the pace at which you can turn the crank, but measuring the efficiency as the quality of the outcome that you produce. Yeah, that's important stuff. Quick fires? Yeah, quick fires. Quick fires. So, yeah, one of our favourite things is that we do like five to six questions at the end, 30 seconds each. Great. All about like random stuff. Great. Hit <laughs> you me. ready? Yeah. Cool. What's one of your favourite books and why? 
um, finite and infinite games. Uh, why um, one of the smartest people I have ever met recommended that book to me, and it just changed the way I thought about long termism versus short termism. And I still think about it like once a week. Mm-hmm. Is that did Naval recommend that? Because he always talks about infinite games. Did he? No, yeah. a guy called Ash Fontana. Okay, cool, cool. I have to check it out. What's one of your favorite podcasts and why? Uh, Invest like the best. Yeah. It's so good. Love it. Um, I love it because I feel like I'm a fly on the wall in a bunch of conversations I would never be privy to, or at least wouldn't be privy to in this moment in my life. Mm. Have you checked out Founders Podcast as well? I have. Yeah, yeah. incredible. So the guys in our job. Yeah, he he's is. sick in the head. He's wired differently. <laughs> <laughs> I find him so funny. Yeah. If you could have dinner with one person, living or dead, who would it be? Mm. Great question. This always changes for me. Like and it you depends. can't say Obama, we get it too much. No, no, no yeah. it's not Obama. <laughs> uh, although I would love, you know, if, if Obama <laughs> yeah. was like, want to have dinner, I'm not going to yeah. be like, no. Um, <laughs> I, I actually really love dinner parties with groups of people around the table and just being kind of getting to observe and maybe even like prompt and curate the conversation. So I don't know if I'm allowed to edit your question and add an S. Go for it. Guests. Yeah. Um, <laughs> who would I want at the moment? Uh I would actually really love um, a dinner party with Afra Bent, who was a turn-of-the-century suffragist, and Andrew Breitbart, um, the kind of conservative media personality. Two very different political angles. Right. What I really want to understand from them is, uh, I think it's called the overturn window, Mm. Um, like how they thought about it, Mm. or if they didn't have the – because Afra – at the time um but like how she thinks about influence and social movements Mm. and how he thinks about influence and social movements and like spitting picking the right moment for an influential social Mm. movement the reason i'm particularly interested in this at the moment is i do i think an enormous amount of successful companies is timing um also i mean zooming out a little bit there's so many like big political changes that in my worldview, I think need to happen. Um, and we're kind of running out of time for them to happen. And thinking about how do you influence the pace at which that window moves and what were some of the levers that they pull and is it different on those two very different sides of politics or are they very similar, just applied to different principles? Yeah, timing is really interesting. Like when did climate change become popular? Why mm. did Al Gore's sort of documentary at that particular moment sort of go off? Why in the past, like, five years has it just become such a big zeitgeist? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I like, I would love their perspectives on that. Mm. I wonder if it would end up in a screaming match. <laughs> it would. It would. Yeah, it would yeah. be interesting, though. It would be a very interesting yeah. screaming match. I, I'm the same as you. I love taking in information from, like, wildly different ends of the spectrum just to mm. understand how different people think. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing mm. better. Like, respectful disagreement and like thoughtful debate disagreeing thoughtful debate i just don't think there's anything better in the world Mm. um it's so doesn't happen that much now though no it's actually really rare i like like when was the last time like a person from fox news and like msnbc got together like a panel and just debated like a round of three or something yeah i don't i mean it it is so salacious you know it's all about triggering an, an emotional response I think it still happens in the like corners of AM radio, but I don't think that many people are listening. 
Cool. Um, changing tact a little bit. Um, you've quoted, this is direct quote, you've said that you try not to make decisions that you don't have to make. Mm. What are some decisions that you don't have to make anymore because you've made that decision not to make them? Mm. Um, that is such a good question. Uh, what are some decisions? My life partner. Mm. Like taking that question off the table, right? I am like fully committed to Marcus for the rest of my life and that will never be an open question for me again. Mm. And I will never have to make that and don't spend any time thinking about it. Um, uh, what what were the like frameworks to make that decision? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> interestingly, interestingly, up until meeting Marcus, it was very framework oriented. Mm. Oh, mm. I lie. It was, both of them. Were, they were all being framework oriented. The framework shift for me was you not write down notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not um, what I think I want, but how I want to feel in my partnership with that person. And um, it seems so simple, but if I oriented just on how it felt on a day-to-day, on a moment-to-moment, it completely changed the kind of person I wanted to be in a partnership with and the nature of that partnership. And I, I fell in love with Marcus in the first time, like in the first week, that we met. Wow. I proposed to him in a rock pool in Byron Bay three months after we met. Three months. Wow. Three months. Wow. Proposed to him. I proposed to him. Wow. With like a ring and like no, like no, that. with like the most atrocious proposal. Wow. So we didn't get married. I don't think we will get married. Neither of us are religious. Our families aren't religious. So three, three months. Wow. Three months. And yeah. you're a VC investor. Yeah, I have conviction. <laughs> I go in, go in wow. hard when I have conviction. Um. Yeah, and I have I, – I still – he just got back from London and I still, like, wake up every morning and I'm so in love with him. Mm, wow. That's wonderful. And so it was – it really worked for me as a decision. But back to the kind of individualization point, that doesn't mean it works for everyone else. Mm. You know, I think it's the, like, choice to listen to myself and, like, have a discussion between gut and mm. framework – and try to work out which of those to listen to in what circumstances. All right, what I'm hearing is I'm going to propose the next girl I got on a date with <laughs> and see, see how it works out. Hey, if you feel like <laughs> um, Yeah, I'm trying to think what are, are some other decisions that I have made that have saved me from making or like that I don't have to keep making. I mean, it's all the little ones, mm. right? It's like the uniform, the like what clothes you wear. Mm. You know, uh, Marcus and I spend our time split between the US and Australia and uh, here or there for multiple months at a time and I just live out of a um, carry-on. Mm. Um, yeah, there's so many. I do really think that um, like decision fatigue is like if you waste your decision effort on the wrong stuff, mm. then the good decisions, yeah. they don't have enough fuel in the tank. What's uh, something you miss about Australia when you're overseas? Um. The sky, mm. the sunsets, so like the natural environment, the people here, um, a reverence, like being able to laugh about seriously not funny stuff. Mm. Um, the depth of connection between people, mm. like the real, um, the real focus on 
you and like not your career not or your career yeah. not like in fact that stuff is like actively avoided in conversation yeah, yeah. it's a fantastic thing hey uh last question uh what keeps you up at night slash what are your worries with, with this new venture you're on and yeah i mean so many things right there's like so many risk areas um there are so many like the macro market there's so much that's it's like moving so quickly yeah um Actually, at the moment, like, candidly, the things that, like, literally wake me up at night. Um, Do you are, actually wake up at night? Uh, yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've actually, fun fact, I've been up since 2.30 this morning and I haven't, like, I didn't get back to sleep. Jesus. And Do you drink coffee? I drank a lot of coffee today. Okay. Um, but the thing that woke me up is uh, commitments that I had made to people mm. that I wasn't able to, like, little things, right? Like, I will follow you up by email and not sending that email. It is a... So you woke up at 2.30 It's like, i got to follow up? Yeah. That... Oh, seriously? Seriously. Oh, my God. <laughs> or curiosity. I very... Wait, why did you do the email at 2.30? I, it's, it's actually, like, the thought pops to mind, and then I'm, like, curious about something, and then my brain is like, good morning, <laughs> and then I'm up. So I try... One of my, um, my biggest unlocks is breath work, and... We do Wim Hof for four podcasts. Oh, it's so good. It and but the like, I was gonna say the breadth of breath work, mm. like all of the different ways that you can use breath to kind of calm yourself or amp yourself up. Um, so I mean, I have a little routine. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I have a routine that I try to like get myself back to sleep. But sometimes my brain's up, mm. and I like surprisingly I have just like learned to go with the flow. Sometimes that happens for me. Sometimes I wake up anywhere between two and four. And I just stay up. I actually feel like really energized right now. I've like, never heard of someone waking up at two just randomly and not going back to bed. Yeah, it's bizarre. <laughs> You're wild. Yeah. <laughs> I just follow my brain. Yeah. Um, this has been such a wonderful episode. This um, has been so fun. Yeah. I want to just like turn these off and just like chat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We should awesome. all go to sleep. <laughs> well, um, Maxine Mentor, thank you very much for coming on. This has been a delight. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Cool. Well, um, a quick shout out. You're still raising at the moment, right? Yes. So if yep. there's LPs um, <laughs> in our audience, um, they will leave your contact details in the description. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for the shout out. <laughs>